Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. We'll read through chapter 11, verse 2. This is God's holy and inerrant word. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. We were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another area, another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. I feel a divine jealousy for you. For I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Let's pray together. Father, would you stir our hearts this morning to love this beautiful Christ, your perfect Son, And he is the embodiment of our deepest desires. We want to know him more so that we can, in turn, love him more. Please reveal him to us through your word. And it is in his name and for the sake of his glory that we pray these things. Amen. Well, this morning uh, we're going to be speaking on the topic of Christ the Groom and the church, his bride. Uh, I'd like to begin by describing to you maybe a modern-day local church body. I'm not describing necessarily any one church, and uh, not even our church, but I want to give you an example of what that description could sound like. This church that I'm imagining has 200, 250 members. It's an elder-led church with three pastor elders, seven deacons. It's based on congregational rule, with congregational approval needed for the business of the church to be completed. They have a thriving children's and youth program. Uh, Each week, hundreds of kids are discipled for Christ. The church leaders have recently revamped the, the mission and the vision statement of the church. And they're working to conduct some market research in the community to find out what needs they can fill. They have a budget. They have church responsibility flow charts and marketing strategies. They're a 501c3 corporation and they're registered with the state. And in in a few ways, this church is very similar to Providence. Uh, Like Providence, this imaginary church is part of the greater universal church. But as Paul reminds us, Both Providence and this imaginary church that I've just uh, described to you are a part of the Bride of Christ. Now, uh, in introducing the idea of the modern church, and especially the church in America as the Bride of Christ, it, it gets a little difficult to fully envision that picture, especially with all of the complications of business and the different organizational structures that cloud our view. When we discuss the church body, 
we often get the feeling that the church is this complicated cluster of meshing gears and pulleys and, uh, and chains instead of what Christ describes her as, a beautiful bride. So it's my prayer this morning that we can begin again to see the church in the way that Christ sees her. And, and last week we looked at kind of the, the big picture of the Trinity as it relates to our union as a church body. Uh, the Trinity is a, a big concept. We barely scratched the surface of it. But it helped us better understand the unity that we are to have with one another as members of the body of Christ. We looked at the greater in order to understand the lesser. This week, in order to understand better the, the marital union that Christ and His church have, we will begin by looking at God's design for marriage between a man and a woman. So we'll look at kind of a lesser institution in order to understand the greater. And it's very right for us to do this. Uh, we'll see this in Ephesians chapter 5. God's institution of marriage is not just uh, a time for a man and a woman to get together, have kids, and, and be done with it, right? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 that God's institution of marriage is set up for the very purpose of pointing people to the greater spiritual truth of Jesus Christ and His church. This is a, kind of a common way of looking at things in Scripture and especially in Jewish philosophy. Uh, I won't try and pronounce the Hebrew word for you, but it's, it's roughly translated. It's, it's going from light to heavy. Uh, it's throughout Scripture. When you see the writer of Scripture saying, how much more then, and, and we see it in Hebrews quite a bit, Jesus uses this kind of argumentation when he talks in Matthew and in Luke about uh, his father's ability to give us good gifts. He says in Matthew chapter 7, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? These are common, ordinary things. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And, and kind of in that process, Christ takes the idea of giving a gift to your child and He uses it to exemplify the Father's gifts to us. And by doing so, He elevates the idea of giving a gift to your child. In, in, the, in the, the process of giving a gift to our, uh, my child, I am showing them in a very, very small way what God looks like. And so in the same way this morning, uh, in order to better understand the idea of Christ as the groom and the church as His bride, we must ask, how does the Scripture describe the marriage between a man and a woman? So, we'll spend a little time on human marriage, uh, a little time on this cosmic marriage and relationship between Christ and His bride, and then at the end, uh, we'll have a, a few moments to, to help us understand our response to this. So, first of all, what is the call of God on a marriage between a man and a woman? Well, first of all, we see in Genesis chapter 2, and you're welcome to turn there, Genesis chapter 2, verse 20, begins this moment when God creates Eve. Adam is naming the animals, he's the only one on earth, the only human, and, and God creates a helper fit for him. And we see, first of all, that Adam and Eve are called, number one, to a unity of person. 
The calling to marriage in Genesis is a calling to a radical unity, a unity of one flesh. Let's read Genesis chapter 2, verses 20 through 25. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There are are three ways in which the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, in this passage, have a unity of person. And there are plenty more than that, but for our purposes this morning, we'll look at three. First of all, there is a unity of body and mind. When God creates Eve, He creates, uh, the, the Scripture tells us, a helper fit for Him. This is a very explicit expression in Scripture. A helper is actually a word in, in the Hebrew that talks about a military assistance. And so, uh, someone to come alongside of the man in battle. But then the idea of fit is actually an interesting idea. It's the idea of Opposite and the same. So think of a puzzle piece, right? And we use this illustration to explain to our kids how men and women were designed for the marriage relationship. Like a puzzle, it's a scriptural concept. And so the man was created and the woman was created to be the exact opposite of him, but in the exact same way the same, so that they would fit together in body and mind. It is true of the mind as well. Often, Scripture calls us to live in, in peace and in agreement, but to anyone who has been married, you know that you often get to that peace and agreement in exactly opposite ways. We all come to a moment where we're heading in the same direction, but we've thought about it differently, and in doing so, we've been able to see the situation more clearly. And so when Scripture calls us to this unity of person, God calls us to a unity of body, and of mind. We also see uh, within that unity of person a unity of identity. Adam says, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And he's not just talking about physical unity. It's a very poetic way of saying, you are a part of me. To the point that your bones are actually my bones. I can see myself in you, and I can see you in me, and we are now united in our identity. Uh, later in these verses, it talks about uh, the man leaving his father and his mother and holding fast or being joined together. That word joined means to stick to, and it's actually used uh, in the Hebrew to form the noun for glue. This word emphasizes the basic meaning of being intimately joined to and identified with another person. And an example is is Ruth and Naomi. Even as Ruth was committed not to being identified with the Moabite people, 
but to being identified with Naomi and her people and her God. When a man and a woman join together in marriage, they are no longer each two separate parts. We talked a little bit about this last week in the unity of the body that we are to see, that we are to be one. That mystery extends even further in marriage. And then thirdly, within that unity of person, we have a unity of calling. God calls us to leave our father and mother and the Scripture says to cleave to his wife. Leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they will be one flesh. The calling that we have in marriage is a call to separate from something in order to be joined to something. It is more than just, as we've talked, the sexual union. Instead, it is the entirety of who we are becoming one with the entirety of our spouse. We are one in person, in body and mind, in identity, and in calling. And then, secondly, in the marriage relationship, we have a a unity of mission. The calling to to marriage in the New Testament, uh, and we'll see this shortly, is a calling to live out a scene from the cosmic narrative. Uh, And I think, frankly, if we taught this more we would have a much higher view of marriage in our culture. Uh, We try to teach our girls over and over again that marriage is not just a thing that you have for the joy of having a partner. It is a, a beautiful story that illustrates what Christ has done for His church. And so if you take marriage and you twist it the way the world has, you come up with something that looks completely different from the marriage relationship that Christ has with us. And just as we talked last week, any time that you twist something that God has made or God Himself, what you come up with is not anything related to God at all. You come up with an idol. And it doesn't relate itself at all to the concept of marriage that the Scripture talks about. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to read a very familiar passage, verses 22 through 33, speaking to wives and husbands, and, uh, and this is kind of a, a cultural uh, commentary Paul gives to the, the Ephesian church on what their marriages should look like and why. If you think about Ephesus and, uh, and kind of the culture that those people lived in, it wasn't so very different from the one that we lived in, we live in now. There was not an understanding of what God calls us to be as husband and wife. And so Paul gives them instructions. Let's read Ephesians 5.22 together. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife 
loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. We have a unity of mission in marriage that goes beyond what the world sees in the idea of marriage. First of all, there's, there's the idea of submission. As the wife submits to her husband. And wives submit to the leadership of their husbands. It's a very uh, tough topic to talk about in today's society. But wives submit to the leadership of their husbands for a couple of reasons in this passage. And first of all, it's not just because the guy deserves it, right? In fact, it's not at all because the guy deserves it. I promise I'm one of those guys. So wives submit to their husbands, first of all, because of the Lord, as to the Lord. It's a picture, and we'll see this in a little bit, it's a picture of the church submitting to Christ. We submit to Christ because of His relationship with God and because of what He has done for us. And and because of our love for Him. Wives submit to their husbands as if you were submitting to Christ because that's what you're doing. And secondly, as we've said, it's a picture of the church. And husbands, love your wives to the point of sacrificing yourself for her. Guys, if you think that the wives have the harder calling in this, We are called to give our lives for our wives and our families. Look at what Christ did for you on the cross. That is what you are called to do for your wife. He makes the argument because your wife is you. Your wife is your flesh. And you would do for her whatever you would do for yourself. You love yourself love your wife even more. It's a picture as well of Christ's love for His own body. There is so much more to say about the marriage relationship. And we could preach a sermon series on it, and many have, and many will continue to do so. But we want to move on from the idea of a husband and a wife and apply these things to the idea of Christ and His church. This beautiful picture that we have in Scripture. So we'll stay... Uh, in Ephesians 5 for just a moment as we turn to this. So, lesser to the greater. If this is how marriage must look, how much more than the marriage of Christ and His church? And, and I just want to uh, make a quick note. Uh, in, uh, in the Old Testament, in the, uh, the, the different uh, books of the Bible, the people of God, Israel, in the Old Testament, are referred to by God as his covenant wife. He refers to that covenant as a marriage covenant, and he refers to Israel as his wife. And and we're going to use some of those same scriptures not to indicate that Israel has been replaced by the church, but because this is how God describes his views of a marriage covenant between him and his people. And so the church, also God's people is referred to as the bride, the beloved of Christ. And so we're going to use some of the same language because this is how God thinks about that relationship. So first of all, 
we have unity of person. Just like with Adam and Eve and with that marriage relationship, in the same way that marriage has a unity of person, we are united in person with Christ. Just like within the marriage relationship, we have unity of body and mind. Just to go back to Ephesians chapter 5 for a moment, no one ever hated his own flesh in verse 29, but nourishes, nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of His body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This is essentially what Hunter preached in his first sermon several weeks ago. That at the moment of our conversion and our entrance into the body of Christ, we have become inseparably one with Him. We are the body of Christ. And in that marriage relationship, Christ treats us as He would treat Himself with all the love and respect that He receives from His Father. Secondly, we have unity of identity. And this was essentially last week's sermon as we talked about unity within the body. Listen in Ephesians chapter 2 to the merging of identities between each of us and Christ. Paul says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, separated, called the circumcision by what is, uh, the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself, in Himself, one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. These verses start with, with us as Gentiles separated from God and from the covenant people of Israel. And in Jesus Christ, in His body, we have been brought together in that body so that we can now come before God united with brothers and sisters in Christ from the Jewish uh, side of the world, from the Jewish ethnicity, so that then we can come together as one before God. It says He came and preached peace. And in verse 19, now you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And the next verse calls us all together, including the cornerstone Jesus Christ, we are a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are no longer Nathan and Roger and Story and Patrick. We are one temple. We are one dwelling place for God. And Jesus Himself is part of that temple. He is the very foundation of it. So we have unity of body and mind. We have unity of identity. 
And we have unity of calling, especially as the church. In the same way that our calling in marriage is to leave a relationship with our parents and their home for a union with our spouse, so we are called to leave behind the things of this world for our union with Christ. This is a very common theme in Scripture. 1 John 2 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The Scripture calls us to turn from the things of the world, from the the age that we live in, and turn our focus towards our bridegroom, towards Jesus Christ. Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. We are called to leave our former lives and to be joined together to Christ. Not only do we have unity of person and some of those different subpoints there, but we also have a unity of mission. In the same way marriage has a unity of mission, Christ and His church have a unity of mission. First of all, we talked about submission. Ephesians 5.24 says, Now as the church submits to Christ, then he goes on to give some instructions to wives. But the whole point of this passage is that the church must submit to her bridegroom. We give our lives because of His worth and value, because He is our God, because He is the One who loved us enough to sacrifice Himself for us. In the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 44, verses 1 and 5, God is talking to Israel, but it's the same kind of concept. Now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel whom I have chosen, this one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. It's this idea of saying, I am leaving behind everything, as we talked in our last point, and I'm submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And secondly, that same unity of mission appears in the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. We could focus on the sacrifice of Christ for eternity, and we will, and never quite grasp the depth of what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. That is the picture that we are called to in the marriage relationship. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He made Him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Isaiah 61.10 I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And he goes on. This is the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. 
Will you turn to Psalm chapter 45? Listen to this fairy tale. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. And the place of your father shall be your son's. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, this is prophetic of Christ and his people. It's a fairy tale, it seems like, right? But it's a little more complicated than the fairy tales that you and I know from our childhood. Tim Keller notes, in this fairy tale, the groom came for the bride and she crucified him. He also goes on in the sermon, a sermon that he preached on, uh, on a, a different passage. Uh, from John chapter 1, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. It's this idea of Christ coming for his bride. And if you think you're in a tough marriage, Christ's bride or the one he was coming for, crucified him. And Christ had the option to leave or to stay on the cross. And he chose to stay. Christ stayed so that you and I might one day be eternally his bride in heaven. And so that one day, and, and even now, he can look at us in the way that this psalm speaks of and say, you are beautiful. If these things are true, and they are, this fairy tale is true, we have a bridegroom who has sacrificed his life for us. 
even when we treated Him badly, and has given Himself to us so that we might be His for eternity. If these things are true, how does it change us? How do we move from our marriages simply acting as just a cultural kind of event, an institution? How do we move from that to representing a beautiful relationship Jesus Christ has with us? And I want to make this point because many of you and many who have been with us as well and who are not with us right now, many of you are not involved in that marriage relationship in this moment. And I want to make the point, as Paul does, it doesn't matter because you are betrothed to Christ. Jesus Christ is your groom, whether this marriage relationship that we describe here on earth is true of you or not. There's a thing that I do every single time I'm at a wedding. And we're going to do it today. On that wedding day, there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on. You get there, you sit down probably an hour before you're supposed to. You wait for all of the groomsmen and everybody's seated and everybody walks up. And then there's a moment that happens when the groom is standing with his groomsmen and the bridesmaids are up and we all stand up and begin to walk down the aisle. And I look, not at the bride, I look at that guy's face. Because I can tell exactly what she looks like without ever seeing her by looking at his face. On this day of all days, today, when you as a member of the church, the universal church, the body of Christ, are betrothed to Christ and are awaiting His return, let me read you the language of a husband towards his bride. And this is Christ's language towards you. It is the look on his face as you walk down the aisle towards him. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 15. And I'm just going to read some selected passages. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. You are as beautiful as Terza, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? Brothers and sisters, this is how Jesus Christ sees you. You are beautiful to Him. You are His bride. And and I'll be honest, as I typed those words, I was feeling worn out. I was feeling disconnected mentally. I was feeling imperfect. And maybe you are as well. But listen to this. Your beauty is not determined by what condition you your makeup is. Your beauty is determined by the gaze of Jesus Christ. He is absolute perfection. And the Scripture tells us that His gaze perfects us. The church is beautiful because of Christ.
There are a few reasons why. First of all, he purchased her with his blood. In Acts 20, 28, Paul instructs the Ephesian elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. He raised her from the dead and seated her in heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that. 2 verses 4 through 7. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He purchased her with His blood. He raised her from the dead and seated her in heavenly places. He satisfied God's wrath and conquered death on our behalf. Romans 3, verses 23-25 through speaks of us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know these verses. But they continue. We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. So how do we, as the body of Christ, seeing the love of our groom, respond? We must respond. If Christ looks at us and uses these words so lovingly, even with all of our foibles and issues and sins, how can we respond? A Dutch theologian in the 17th and 18th centuries says it so well, and I'm going to paraphrase him. His name is Wilhelmus Abrakel. I'll paraphrase a few of his thoughts, and I just want to, to say that as I do, ask yourself, and I will be asking myself, is this how I relate to Christ, the bridegroom of the church? First of all, we relate to Christ by beholding Him together as a body. And beholding the Lord Jesus in His beauty, desirability, and His fullness. There will be thoughtful reflection and meditation as a body of believers on His incarnation, on His suffering and death, on His resurrection, on His ascension. And in all of these, we behold His love. We behold His willingness. We behold the atonement and the fullness of salvation that the sinner receives. He says, here the soul pauses with longing eyes, desiring a further, clearer, and closer view of the perfections of Christ. She desires to find delight in such contemplation, to be ignited with love, to joyfully acknowledge and approve of Him as such, and to praise and magnify Him. In this manner, a believer beholds Jesus. And such beholding of Him stirs Jesus up to express His love then towards the believer. So by beholding Him, by loving Him. When the heart of a believer goes out in love towards Jesus and we view Jesus Christ as our own, as as our bridegroom, there will be then a desire to focus our eyes on the One who is loved, on Jesus Christ Himself. And by looking at Him, by beholding Him, our love will be stirred up all the more. For the loved one, us, will behold love in the face 
of the beholder. When you look at Christ and you see the love that He has for you, you cannot help but be stirred to love Him in return. Abrakel says this mutual beholding of each other in love is as an act of communication whereby loving desires toward each other are maintained. And speaking of communication, another way we express our love is by speaking with Christ. He says the soul who thus beholds Jesus and loves Him will share with her beloved her heart, her love, and her grief for not loving Him more. She will share her needs and desires with Him. She will plead affectionately with Him and beg Him sweetly for their fulfillment. She listens to what Jesus has to say to her and turns herself to His Word, understanding it to be the voice of her beloved. This is particularly true when with clarity, power, and sweetness He impresses a text of Scripture upon her heart, causing her to speak to Him in return. And in turn, causing Jesus to reply to her by depending on Him. In love, the bride leans on her bridegroom, entrusting to Him her soul, her body, and whatever she may encounter. And she expresses and reveals all of this to the bridegroom. She takes refuge under His shadow and rests in His safekeeping. Fifthly, by asking for His wisdom. If something has to be done, if if we must perform an action or refrain from an action, the bride will neither proceed blindly nor will she trust her own judgment, and much less will she follow her own will. Rather, she will ask counsel of her Lord, asking Him what is pleasing to Him, for His will is her will. And then sixthly, by taking hold of His strength and the benefits He provides. We have the opportunity as the bride to go to Christ. When sin comes upon us, and receive from Him the benefit of washing and renewal by His blood. We have the opportunity to go to Christ as the bride when the world overwhelms us and the cares and desires of this present life drag us down. And we can be washed by Him. If we are weak, we can go to Him for strength. And in union with Him, we can overcome all resistance and do whatever He asks us to do by His strength. We boast to everyone around us about our bridegroom. We have the opportunity to tell people, look at what Christ has done for me and what He continues to do for me. Won't you come and be a part of this bride? The book of Revelation closes with a picture of the happily married couple. And what are they doing? They're on mission calling people to become part of the bride. Revelation 22, verses 12 through 17 as we close. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have a right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The Spirit and the Bride 
say come. And let the one who hears say come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. This is the picture that we are called to represent to the world around us. So when you hear of the arguments for and against marriage, when you hear all of the things that the world would love to tell you about what marriage is and is not, understand that we have a much higher calling in the Word of God. In marriage, first of all, to express to the world what it looks like for Jesus Christ to marry the church, to marry His bride. And then in doing so, as we walk together as a body of believers, we have the opportunity then to tell the world about this wonderful relationship we're in. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful for your word. We're so uh, in awe and humbled to hear the words that Jesus Christ has spoken about us through the scriptures. To understand that this, in fact, is your view of marriage. Father, help us in our earthly marriages to reflect these truths. And then, Lord, help us as we look towards this wonderful marriage that we have with our beautiful bridegroom, Jesus. To submit to him in all things. And then to turn and reflect him to the world around us. If you would, just take a moment and... Uh, just a moment of silence and in prayer. Ask the Lord to begin to do this work in your heart. Thank Him for what He has said to you this morning. And in a moment we'll close in song.